session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Just another reminder, the cruise is happening March 9th. Um, We're very excited about it. There's going to be entertainment with DJ Alex and other performers, as well as many professionals who will be sharing their expertise uh, related to things like business development and networking. And I'll be doing several seminars and question and answer sessions on the cruise. That's March 9th through the 12th, uh, going to Ensenada, Mexico. And you can contact Commercial Travel. Go to my social media where you have Uh, You'll have their contact information there and get more information, but hope to see you there this March 9th through the 12th. Um, Announcing the book of the week again for this week, it is Sway, The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior by Ori and Ram Brafman, who are actually brothers. I didn't know when I bought the book. Uh, It's been an interesting read so far. Just another reminder that although we think we're so rational and we know why we're doing things, very often we don't. And there's lots of pulls towards doing things in an irrational way. But I'll talk uh, about that book in more detail on Monday night's show. I wanted to start today talking about another aspect of identity. Last week I talked a bit about sexual identity to start the show on Wednesday. Uh, But today I wanted to talk more about cultural, ethnic, and racial identity. And in a way those, those three terms can overlap Uh, And I won't get into great detail because I'm also not an expert on exactly what those mean specifically, but we use them interchangeably at time. Generally speaking, we use race more as a uh, idea of biology, but even this is not quite clear what that means, but generally that's what they refer to as more biology. And ethnicity comes more from someone's culture. So someone might be white or Caucasian, but then they can be Scottish, and then someone else can be English as they're ethnicity, but their race would still be white. Um, And then culture is a big part of ethnicity, whereas race is supposed to be more biologically determined. However, um, many scientists would agree that race is a socially constructed concept. So it's not some purely biological thing, but it seems to be much more socially constructed where we draw the lines and say who is who or what is what. So uh, that's just some comments about that. But I wanted to talk about Uh, how we form our ethnic or cultural identity, and specifically some of the issues that surround being bicultural. So bicultural would be someone kind of like myself, who is born to Iranian parents, but born in the United States, and is, of course, at home having one culture, but then living in another. That's as opposed to biracial, which would mean if you have biological parents of different races, let's say one Iranian and one American parent. 
but we're talking about bicultural meaning someone who is exposed to different cultures. And even saying bicultural itself can be um, maybe simplifying it because at the end of the day, we're exposed to many different cultures, maybe something I'll touch on later on in this segment. Um, but to begin with, when we look at something like culture, we can think of it as things like customs and music and language and preferences. But it's more than just that because culture also relates to things that determine morally things that are right and wrong. Um, from how to act in certain situations to how to treat family or elders to how to choose the path we live in our life. And also it's important things like gender roles. What's okay for a man to do? What's not okay for a man to do? What is okay for a woman to do and not okay? And also what are the expectations? So it isn't just about liking music. It's also about living life in the quote-unquote right or wrong way, which is why sometimes people can be so passionate about culture, and especially with their kids. You very often see parents, uh, immigrant parents who have kids in a new country. They don't want their kids to lose their culture. Of course, some of it could be in a almost selfish or narcissistic way of keeping that connection with their lineage and their, their children, but also can oftentimes reflect this idea that living our way is the right way and living their way, this new culture's way, is the wrong way. And this is something you might hear from a lot of Persian parents and other immigrant parents that, oh, they're becoming like the American kids. And of course, this is said in a very negative way. They're doing things the wrong way like they do. And they get concerned and this is why they want to keep them closer to their own culture because they think that's the right way of living life. They don't want them to lose that. But I also want to talk about the perspective of someone who's exposed to multiple cultures. And I can even share some of my own experience and also the path that we sometimes go through. So people sometimes ask, is it good to be bicultural or is it a bad thing? And like most things, it's not a black or white yes or no kind of a thing. There's some good and there's some bad. Uh, the good is you can be more creative because you see things from different perspectives because of the different cultures, you can often see things in different ways. And also related to that, be more empathic. You can be more able to connect to other people because, again, you have that multiple perspectives. And you could also gain this from traveling extensively and um, immersing yourselves in different cultures. So you don't have to be biracial or bicultural to experience this. But the exposure from a young age of different types of of cultures can be good in making us more aware of other people, more sensitive to other people, more empathic, and also more creative because we have uh, more understanding of different perspectives. But on the other hand, there can be issues of identity confusion that come about for someone who is bicultural. Someone who's born into an American family living in America doesn't really have that same confusion about their culture. Who am I as someone who, for example, is born um, into the United States with a name like Farid, which is a Persian name or an Arabic name also, uh, and born into a family with those kinds of values and cultural background. There could be more confusion. And of course, at times I did have to deal with that myself. So you have that confusion that develops in def defining who am I. And most people go through a pattern or a um, a series of steps, not all in the same order, and I won't say it as if everyone's going to go through it the same way, but we do see that many people go through these similar stages, and I won't use technical terms for them, but kind of describe them the way that I myself have experienced them and have observed them in other people. 
So to begin with, when children are very young, because their parents mean so much to them, because the home is such a big part of their life and their parents are really their everything, uh, they love them the most, they give them the best feeling, they want to be in a positive uh, light to their parents most importantly, children tend to favor their parents' culture. Now, of course, once they get to school, you might see them change that a bit, but especially when they're even younger, there is more of an acceptance of, of their own culture. But as they get a little bit older and as their peers become more important, and of course this becomes strongest during the adolescent years, uh, and this is a challenge for many parents where their kids seem to care a lot less about what their parents think, and even actually more than that, they disagree with their parents and want to disagree with their parents about everything, um, they become much more reliant or much more concerned about their peers. What do my friends think? What do people at school think? What do people my age think? The adults don't know what they're talking about. The kids do. And so in this age, very often, you'll see children and teenagers show a strong resistance towards their own culture. You know, Persian things, for example, become so uncool. Oh my gosh, Persian music, turn that off. Or even you'll see a strong resistance to speaking the language. So a lot of parents have this issue of, you know, my kid would talk to me in Farsi and answer in Farsi all the time. Now, if we speak to her in Farsi, she won't even answer. She won't even respond to us and she won't say a word in that language. And they're so shocked. But your child is going through this uh, transition and figuring out who they are. And they're embracing the native culture of where they're living and rejecting their, their own cultural heritage or their own past in this process. And of course, for a lot of parents, this can create a lot of anger and resistance and they might fight against it and try to force their kid to love their culture and speak again the language and love the music and whatever else it might be. But usually this is faced with strong resistance. And what I always advise parents is to give your kid the space to explore this. They have to figure out their identity. You can't hammer into them identity. They have to choose it and uh, realize it for themselves. So very often you'll see in this you know, adolescent transitional period, this resistance and going away from that culture that they grew up in and embracing the American culture. And this is very common and in some ways can be healthy to a degree. What I sometimes also tell parents when they say, how do I get my kids to be more Persian? How do I get them to love the culture more and be more engaged and more involved in the culture? I let them know we have to recognize that your children understanding and knowing the culture they're being they're living in better is much more likely to make them successful than holding on to their past culture. Yes, they can still embrace that and have that, but they need to really immerse themselves in the culture they're living in. That's that's their life now. And actually, that's why the kids adjust a lot better than the parents do. And they can be more successful because they can relate better. They can understand the culture. They acculturate more smoothly, more quickly. And because of that, they can be more successful. So don't hold them back by saying you have to hold on to these uh, old beliefs or, or culture. Let them embrace what's there. So during this period, an adolescent, a teenager, and even a young adult, it's not that everyone, again, is going to go through it at the same time or even go through it at all. But they're going to be a lot more interested and involved in the host culture. So I'm just going to keep saying American, uh, imagining someone like me, an Iranian-American who was born to Iranian parents, but born here in the United States or came here at a very young age. But then very often, and this is something I know I'm, I myself experienced, they start to come back to their cultural heritage. They start to recognize the good in it and, and connect to it more once they've 
gone through this period of finding themselves and immersing themselves in that American culture. And I've noticed that in myself. As I got older, Persian music sounded better to me than it did when I was a teenager. Or um, even speaking the language, or even poetry. Sometimes I wouldn't fully understand it, but there'd be something beautiful about it. And I found myself coming more towards the Persian culture, being more ready to embrace it and integrate it into who I am. And then ultimately that's the goal and that's what ends up happening is some level of integration where you find who you are between these two cultures. And that's again what can be hard for someone who's uh, bicultural, who is for example Iranian-American, is figuring out who I am. And something that they often experience is they don't quite feel like they belong to the American culture and very often They'll let them know they don't belong, so they'll get discrimination or they'll be made fun of or they'll be told that they're somehow different. And then they don't also totally belong with the Iranians who are very Iranian and they feel somewhere in between in this no man's land where no one really gets them and they don't relate to anyone. Of course, ideally, they sometimes find other people in the similar position, other Iranian-Americans who are somewhere stuck in between. But this is where it becomes difficult to figure out who am I? Am I Iranian? Am I American? If I'm in between, what does that mean? How do I blend that together? And this is the, the struggle or the challenge that people who are bicultural have to experience, figuring out who they are. And hopefully the goal is to come to a place where they know who they are, they feel good about it, and likely it incorporates and integrates parts of both cultures, but they feel content with who they are. And they can feel okay that this is me, and I might be... Um, in some ways Iranian, in other ways American, and in some ways some kind of blend. And that's what we see. And culture itself is not these monolithic separate things. We see things blend together. And you see this in art all the time, where you'll hear now Persian music that has a, a hip-hop influence or Spanish influence or other types of influences, and they create a new type uh, of music or culture. That culture is constantly evolving. And so people who are bicultural oftentimes have a blend between those cultures that is something new. That's another, not purely Iranian, not purely American, but something in between. Um, but what I also want to say, as I mentioned earlier to the parents, is when you see your kids going through this, just like any part of their identity, your job isn't to push them or force them to a certain way because you think it's right or you even think you know it's right. You're supposed to allow them to go through their own experiences to find who they are. And if you see them in these you know, late childhood, early teenage years resisting the culture or the language or the music or whatever it is, and you find yourself really upset about it and scared about that, first of all, ask yourself why. But secondly, figure out that it's part of their process and you have to let them go through it. Okay, they're going away now, but there likely will be a time they come back. And you can't push them away or pull them back. You have to let them go through that process on their own to find who they are and figure out who they are. And many people just like me will go through this experience of in those years feeling a resistance towards this cultural heritage that they have and somehow think it's uncool or they don't want to be a part of it. But then later on come back to it and see the beauty of it and want to uh, incorporate it into their life. But if you try to force it down their throat, you're more than likely to push them away and maybe they never will come back to it. They'll always have this negative feeling about that. So let them go through that process. Identity is something that you can't force someone. Each person is left to their own to figure out who they are on their own time and in their own way. All right, we've reached the end of the first segment. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi, you're on the air. Hi, Farid. Uh, we spoke a while ago, maybe two months, about uh, things going on in my life. You helped, you were able to help uh, your make phone, more clear. Your voice is coming, uh, you know, it's funny you said clear. Your voice is coming in a little not clear. Maybe speak more into the phone. Is it better now? Yes, that is better. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I was just saying that, you know, before we previously spoke, maybe two months ago, uh, mm -hmm. you were able to help make clear certain things. The uh, advice you gave was to get therapy. Unfortunately, I was still weary about spending some of my own money on that, but uh, hmm. I'm getting closer to it. Maybe a couple more free sessions with you and I can... <laughs> step into that realm. But, well, I uh, hope you will. And, you know, I might have mentioned it last time. And what I do on the air, of course, is, is similar to therapy in some ways, but also different from the experience you would, you would have in therapy. Now, I know you said a call, you called a few months ago. And I do remember a bit about what you said, but also just for me and the listeners will, in a way, start from scratch so that people can, can understand what's going on um, and, and know what's happening and, and not have to assume they remember from last time. So tell me a bit about what's going on. If you have any questions now or where you're at now and what you want to do yeah sure no it was in regards to this american girl that i was seeing that uh you know some of the family and uh, my father weren't too happy about mm -hmm. but being half you know iranian half american the american side was all for it in fact she came to our christmas mm -hmm. and i was able to introduce her to my mother and that side and things were great um but as usual, there's an internal conflict with me about committing and, uh, you know, pursuing something uh, more substantial with her. Uh, mm -hmm. It hasn't really left, but I've kind of, I've kind of kept that negative at bay because there's so many good things happening, you know, uh, from us being together. So I guess at the end, you know, right now things are good and I've been ignoring the bad. Mm -hmm. a little more, and uh, haven't really asked for influence, you know, from the family or my father. Just like you said, I said, I'm a little indecisive, and I put decisions uh, to those closer around me to help avoid making a choice for myself. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. that insight really helped. Okay, with not good. Not just the girl, but others. Okay, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you're, you know, you're trying to listen to yourself a little bit more. There's lots of reasons we can be uh, indecisive. But just to get a little more background, how old are you, how old is she, and how long have you guys been dating? Right. You know, she uh, is six years older than me. I'm 28, so she's 33, 34. Mm -hmm. um, when I'm angry, she's 34. When I'm not, she's 32, 33. But um, she's, you know, regular white girl from Oklahoma, lives in Texas, met her at uh, a cafe, uh -huh. and uh, we're friends for and a half years and we started seeing each other since last january that's right i'm kind of remembering more of it that you guys were you guys were friends for a while and, and how long have you guys been in a relationship for about uh a year one year okay and i know you said you're trying to avoid uh, maybe facing some of those the issues of your indecisiveness about the future but the relationship is ongoing and i'm wondering does she put a pressure on you for what she wants no okay no and I don't know, um, she doesn't put a pressure, but I put the pressure because of her age. Mm -hmm. Inside of me, I say, wow, don't I feel accountable if I, you know, continue to have fun and enjoy the time without 
progressing into something more substantial that I'm wasting her, you know, prime years where she could be finding another mate, you know, mm-hmm. um, and being able to use her time wisely. But, you know, I mentioned those things to her and she cries, gets upset and says, I don't want to lose you. And I, you know, then I'm like, all right, well, we'll just, you know, keep doing what we're doing. Well, um, well, I mean, I think it's good that you bring it up, but it doesn't seem like the conversation really addressed the issue you brought up. It seems like you both might be avoiding facing the reality. Now, if she says, I don't want to have kids and I'm okay staying in this casual relationship with you or by casual... She cas- wants them. She and, wants uh, kids. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I, you know, I want, I want kids as well. I'm not in a rush, but, you know... Or I kind of feel maybe a little indirect pressure because of the age. Yeah. Well, I mean, which I understand that pressure you're feeling and, and you're trying to be open with her, but I do have the concern, as I was just saying, that you guys are both avoiding what's happening, which is the reality. Yes, you don't want to lose each other. Breaking up is painful and we don't want to say goodbye. And it's not that you guys for sure have to, but we have to make sure we don't say, well, because of the pain of the breakup, let's keep doing something that might not be the best for us, especially with her, um, mm-hmm. her situation yeah, at 34. Of course she can have kids for a while, although it gets riskier and riskier as she gets older. And so yeah. there is a, uh, you know, an actual window that we're talking about time frame that she has to think about, um, and just avoiding it because she doesn't want to lose you might not to me, doesn't make sense in the logical sense. It could put you guys in a bad place and your guilt might continue to grow. I think it's important for you guys to talk about it because if you are very upfront with her and she says, this is what I want, then you can recognize that, okay, she's, she's knows what she's bargaining for. But I kind of feel the way you described it, that your conversation with her was, okay, maybe we do need to break up, but let's not because it's going to be painful. Well, I'll tell you, um, it is a very great area and, um, to just go out and not to say it's bad to say, oh, we want kids. Okay, we both know we do. We both want marriage, you know, with each other. It's very possible. Um, but to go and create the goal of these things can lose track of, you know, to make things a means to an end. And that's not what I want from a partner either, is to treat things as though um, we do this to get that. You know what I'm saying? I want to do this because that's what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? I hear what you're saying, you know, that it, we shouldn't just look at each other as a means to an end, but we have to recognize that the ends we're looking for in a relationship are important, and sometimes we can lose those very important things. So it, uh-huh. it's not that, you know, it's not like we make it into a transaction and it becomes like a business uh-huh. deal, but we have to be aware of what we're looking for and that what we're looking for might not match with the other person and that can be very significant so i do hear in what you're saying i get some kernel of truth but i still feel a kernel of the denial of just trying not to face the reality of okay maybe this there's some big issues here the age itself can be an issue your age difference but then also wanting different things at this time because it seems like she wants does she want kids now no okay so she doesn't want she makes it very and she says, I don't want kids right now. She wants to develop things with me, and then naturally they'll come. I said, okay, that sounds nice. Okay. But, it, I mean, there's, there might be some more planning and preparation than, you know, the kids don't magically, uh, you know, a stork doesn't bring them to your door like we used to think in the cartoons. You, you know, There's going to be some yeah. more preparation from your guys' part 
there. So, I mean, when she says she doesn't want kids now, does she say when she wants kids or does she think about that it will get harder? She doesn't have to for me to know that it's going to be within the next four years. You know, I mean, very implicit. I consider the age and and her experiences. And right now, work-wise, she's finally taking hold of her career in her hands and is progressing that way. And she's building more excitement for herself and is more motivated to pursue things that are directly just for her, which is beautiful because before she wasn't able to do that, um, I think being around a selfish person like me has helped her open up her eyes to hey, it doesn't have to be for others all of the time. So uh, that's going to give some time, you know, before the kids need to come in. I think uh, in my end, it's good to be selfish to a certain level and then to share that with somebody else. And then kids come, you give all of your attention and energy to them next. So there's like stages, I think, and she's finally uh, starting to do things for herself. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely stages, but you know, being a parent, it's not like a huge a shift that's just going to happen. You have to really be ready for that. Things will definitely change. But when you say you're selfish, why do you describe yourself in that way? How are you selfish? Well, I, um, you know, I I see the world. I know that ideas, beliefs, politics, religion, all of these things exist outside of me. Um, but what's inside of my control, uh, what directly affects me and uh, the criterion that I think all humans we try to go by is what makes us happy. So I try to fulfill that slot first, you know, and I feel as though if I am selfish is the word, but really let's make it a little less uh, sharp, a more softer tone is if I love myself, um, I'll be able to love others better. You know, if I'm able to give more for me, I'm able to give more for others. But if I give, you know, if I put others before myself, I lose. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's that's true. But and I would definitely say there's a distinction between self-love and selfishness. Uh, to to love yourself does not mean you're being selfish. But when you're okay. selfish, we're we're trying to take, and we don't we're not going to care about other people. But it's also coming from a lack of self-love. So it, they are different things. It but, does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, selfishness is because I feel empty inside. I'm trying to fill myself up. I don't actually, Eric Fromm talks about it in a few of his books, but in The Art of Loving, he mentions that the selfish person doesn't love themselves too much. They don't love themselves at all. So they're almost trying to fill up this empty pit by greed. Well, then I'm not sure what to label at times because I think it can switch between the two. Okay. Well, maybe that's possible. Yeah, so it's something to think about for yourself. Uh, but, but when we when we genuinely love ourselves, we can love other people too. And we, we there's not a you know sometimes there was this idea that love was like this finite thing we have within us. So if you direct it towards yourself, there's none left to direct outwards. But most people now would not agree with that. Actually, the more you can genuinely have for yourself, it allows you to love people outside as well too. It's not it's a kind of a a renewable resource. It renews itself. It doesn't run out in that way. So. A bucket that gets full of water, you know, love for yourself, you're the bucket, you get full, the water keeps pouring out, regardless, you know. Sure, yeah, it can pour out in other directions when you have it genuinely towards yourself sure. as well. So it seems like you're not sure where you fall fall in that. But, we, you know, you also right. mentioned this idea of fear of intimacy or commitment that I remember we, we talked about last time. Um, but is there a fear of commitment you have with her? How does that, sh- has she asked for more commitment or you said she has not? She's in a in a she wants 
me to be more expressive of my feelings for her verbally. Um, for me, I feel like I give her a lot of attention and energy and help her see things she wasn't seeing before. You know, like, I give her a love, but I don't say it, really. I'm not... Um, I mean, correct me if I want do, do Iranians, they say, like, I in Farce, they say... Like, or I love you. Is that something that they say to each other? Is it a verbal expression? or? <laughs> yeah, they, they do say it to each other. You can say it to each other. It is interesting, the the wording of Dusat Daram in, in Farsi. Uh, but they can express it. But I'm not sure if your point is to say that Iranians don't express love or in some way it's not that natural for you to be verbal about your love for her. For, for really anything, you know, for even with my mom or my dad i i give them who i am you know i give them i'm very transparent we said maybe sometimes over but i include them with everything i remain in contact with them i constantly give them attention and give them involved and i feel like that in itself is showing the love <laughs> you know and saying it um i told her she says why don't you just tell me you love i said you know okay i love you okay Almost like I have to just get it out. Yeah, yeah. that's that's not probably not going to fulfill what she's asking for when you say it the way I just no. heard it. Yeah. Now let you know. I want you're bringing up a few issues that are important related to love and how we show love and how a person feels love, and I want to continue with you. So hang on line. Let's talk after the break. Okay. 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 All right. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. Back before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to him. Caller, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about, uh, at the end of the, the, the segment, about your relationship, and although you brought up your, your family too, and how difficult it is for you to verbally express your love, and that you feel like, hey, I show you I love you. Why do I need to tell you? Um, it reminds me of a few things. One is like there's this, uh, I heard it from older, it's kind of a joke too, but I've heard it from older Persian couples the wife was saying, why don't you tell me I love you? And the husband said, on our wedding day, I told you once. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. Right? So um, some really people, no. yeah, maybe that's how you feel also. And you feel like you showed in other ways. It does remind me of this idea of um, the five love languages uh, by is it Chapman, I think is the author. But anyway, it's a classic book about relationships. But the idea is that people feel love and they express love in different ways. And... Um, there's these different love languages that he talks about. And if we express love in a language that isn't the language that that person feels loved in, as much as we might give them that love, they won't feel it. And so you might uh -huh. think you're showing her love because you do the things you're saying, but it seems like for your girlfriend, getting verbal affirmation of that love is very important, and she needs that. But it seems like there's something difficult about that for you. So... I get what you're saying that, yeah, I show you I love you in these ways. Why should it matter that I say it or not? I'm showing it to you. But she's telling you that's important. What do you think makes it so hard for you to verbalize it? I was going to ask you, tell me why it's so hard, because I have <laughs> no clue. But it's very difficult it, well, to, yeah. for it to come out. It's like venom. I don't know. It hurts. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There's something about the tenderness that seems like it's hard for you to handle. Uh, to verbalize it. It doesn't feel... Something just feels... You said venom. I mean, that's really strong. It just feels somehow painful, I think very, very uncomfortable yeah. for you to say that 
Um, going back to your childhood, was was your family verbal about their love? Was that something you heard a lot yourself? You know, I don't remember. Uh, you know, my dad was very just uh, on on point with giving me everything that he had and bringing me out of a difficult position and, you know, helping me grow in life. And to me, that is the ultimate mm-hmm. versus any word my mom could say of, oh, sweetie, I love you, or, you know, your mama's little baby, whatever the case, um, my position with her wasn't as good as it was with my father growing up. Mm-hmm. So what I saw from experience was that the true love is given through experience, through um, really developing and helping create a better environment for myself, you mm-hmm. know. Well, that's interesting. So from your, and I'm remembering a bit, and so you might have to remind us a bit about your past. I remember your parents divorced when you were very young, and I remember your mom, you you lived a pretty hard life with her for many years. Is that right? Yeah, for nine years with her, and then my dad was, worked his way up, you know, coming from Iran, with nothing, was able to learn the language, and then we all know the horror stories, but worked his way up at Home Depot to the point where he was able to provide for me and give Mm -hmm. me a better lifestyle. Yeah, um, and your mom had, I, I remember, I think it was, from my memory, you guys were living in a lot of poverty, and I don't remember what she was dealing with, was it addiction or something? She was going through something. No addiction, she, you know, she drinks alcohol and uh, was addicted to food, very obese woman at the time before she uh-huh. lost all of the weight, but the thing was that uh, she was consumed with work and providing for two kids, and life wasn't easy for her either, so... Yeah. Um, but you you brought up an important point that she maybe verbalized love to you a lot, but you didn't feel it because she didn't take care of you or give you what you, uh-huh, you needed. Uh-huh. So maybe yeah. for you, words are are very empty. And I would agree very with you empty. that if someone tells you I love you, but then they, and I'm not saying your mom did this, but in general, people can tell you I love you or I'm sorry, or they say this, but if their actions don't meet those words, the words are very empty. So words in and of themselves don't mean much. So if you tell someone I love you, you but treat them bad and don't give them time, they won't feel that. But it seems like for you, maybe because words have this association of not meaning anything, you don't like to say them. But I think it's more than just that. There seems to be something that the tenderness of saying I love you, that intimacy that we talked, I think you said a bit about last time. It's hard for you to get intimate in that way and just express I love you, and sit with those words, it makes you feel too uncomfortable. I feel like things have to be right first. I I don't know. With Emily, if she tells me she loves me, I know she really means it. She says it with her heart, you know, in her eyes and in the way she says it. Mm -hmm. When she wants to kiss me on the cheek or ask if I've eaten in a day, that's beautiful and stuff, but I feel like I want her to show that she loves me is to better herself first. I don't know. What, what do you mean by better herself? With the... <laughs> with, uh, with her health, with the, her career, with um, filling in the holes that, are, that she has right now that show that she's unhappy. She's very happy when she gives, but when it comes to herself, she would neglect for a lot of times in her life. Okay, you mentioned uh, her health. What's happening with her health? Physically, um, maybe I'm type A. I think we've talked about that before as well, that I have a higher expectation with most things in life. I've, physically, we should be in you know, pretty good shape, I feel. You know, and that's the reflection of you know, treating your body like a temple. You're going to be more healthy mentally. And, uh, okay, but so are you not happy with how she looks? Well, 
not that I'm unhappy, but that, you know, I feel like we want to do better than what we, you know, presently are normally. Right, I, but you, you, I, you I keep, do. I'm going to stop you there because you keep saying it to these abstracts, like... Uh, I'm very abstract. I don't want to narrow it down. <laughs> I know, yeah, because I think you don't want to say what you're really thinking or feeling. Cause you I'm feel getting like... hot in the car. The AC's on and I'm still getting hot. All right, okay, yeah, yeah so exactly. I, I feel like you're, you know, you're feeling uncomfortable because you don't want to say what you actually think or feel because you feel like it, it maybe it's going to be offensive or make you look a certain way. And so you're going exactly, to these generalities yeah. like health yeah. is an important thing. The body is a yeah. temple. I mean, these are all truths, yeah. but... I get the feeling yeah. you're not happy with her. You're angry with her. You don't feel good about her in some way. And maybe that's another reason why saying I love you doesn't feel her, quite her right. Physical, her physical could be better. Well, could, but again, could be better is true about everyone. Are you attracted to her? I mean, I'm a, there are, you know, she has a lot of beautiful and cute features. Okay, but that's, but again, you're getting into the abstract. You didn't answer the question of if you feel attracted to her. Uh, I don't know how to answer. Well, I mean, you, the, the, there's a, a there's a three-letter answer that tends to be okay, which is yes, but it seems like that's not how you feel. I'm not saying say it unless you feel it, but, you know, there seems to be a lot in the way of you even feeling good about her, feeling good about the relationship, so... I could understand you not wanting to say I love you or say there those things because so, you don't okay. feel them. There, there are, you know, I have a primal instinct to want to have the best-looking mate, all right? But whenever I see a girl that can give so much love and really be behind it and fully with me and match up in so many other dimensions, it's hard for me to say that I'm not attracted to her and, you know, mean it because there's an attraction higher than her physical. Physically, she's not the most attractive woman to me. No. Okay. Okay. Which could be fine. I mean, you, you likely won't be with someone who you find to be the most attractive, just physically, woman in the world. But it's accepting the person and wanting them for who they are as a package, right. of course, everything, including right. their their appearance, but of course, how they make you feel, how they love you, how you feel with them. But you do need to have the physical. And the way you talk about it is almost like there's this, uh, you're not okay with it. You know, it's not just, yeah, of course, everyone can see that there's more attractive people than their partner. That's going to be true for everyone. Um, but there seems to be something that you're you're almost upset with or unhappy with. Has has she changed physically in the time that you guys have dated or known each other? Yes, yes, she's gotten much skinnier. Okay, which you you she's lost a lot of weight. I go to the gym with her. I train her at the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, she's she cooks very healthy. Did I mention she's the best cook? She's very good. No, she you didn't. But healthy. Uh huh. So you know, she's progressing in that regard too, and that is. Um, very loving that she cares and that she cares about herself, you know, enough to do it versus drinking and smoking cigarettes when I first met her, uh -huh. you know. Is there any ways where you see similarities between her, oh, her and your mom? What is it? Do you see any similarities between her and your mom? Um, when she gets angry, for sure, yes. Okay. Um, but when not, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to narrow it. Mom, I don't know. Okay. The highest quality my mother has is a loyalty. I've never seen a woman more loyal uh, mm -hmm. to stick by family, thick and thin. But um, with Emily, I guess it could be around that too. Um, very loyal person. Okay. Uh, there does seem to be, and even in how you talked about her, and you do, we talked about the high standard, like a perfectionism, and a, with that, a judgmentalness that comes with it of. Of, of just and maybe you likely turn that into yourself too but 
the way you talk about her, I feel like there's a strong judgmentalness of like, well, she should do this, she should do that. Why isn't she doing more I am, of this? I am. All right. Yeah, I am. <clears throat> what does that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, it means a lot of things. It means, like I said, you're going to do that to yourself too. But yeah, that, I do that, all the time. Yeah, and then that perfection is when you put it onto your partner, it's going to be a lot of judgment. And then it seems like you at times can become disappointed with her or in a way. Yes, I set her up to fail. Yeah, right. I mean, she you, said that to me last night. Yeah. I but, said, what did you say to me? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's okay. But it just seems like you put put her, you know, you put that, that judgment on her. And then, of course, you think, ugh, why would I say I love you to you? You don't feel it that much. Because you kind of make you kind of put talk down to her in a way. Yeah. I mean, does does that feel true to you that you see her in yeah. a way less than you? At times, yes. Okay. Well, that's going to be a problem. And I feel you know you mentioned you yourself can feel that you're selfish at times, and I'm seeing a little bit of that in how you talk. There's this feeling of being better than, um, which yeah. usually does come from a place of somehow deeper feeling less than. Which is yeah. what what you'd have to address, but that's what I feel like when you're you know talking to her. There's this feeling of she's not as good as me, and so it's harder for you probably to to verbalize how you feel about her, to say I love you so much because you're not you sure you feel it. that. Yeah, nailing the. Yeah, nailing it. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's what I think is important in the way you're you're feeling, and so she wants to hear I love you, and those words you, your mouth can make those words but you don't feel them, and so you don't say them to her. And this is why I was saying about going to therapy, and I know you're saying you don't want to spend your own money on it, and I, you know, I enjoy these free That's sessions. That's besides that we, it. What's I that? I mean, I, I get I need it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even you're talking about bettering yourself about telling her, but this would be a way to better yourself, you know, to work on yourself. And it's not going to be easy, so I understand many people resist going to therapy. But the way I remember you talked about your parents last time, you've touched on it this time, I remember your childhood being very painful and there was a lot of just, uh, you know, just not easy things to deal with that clearly have affected you as they affect anyone. And I think you're bringing that into this relationship. And the fear of closeness is there. You had, you saw the divorce at, at a very young age, but your mom was going through so much that you probably had mixed feelings towards her and you don't feel good about getting close to someone. It doesn't feel safe. And even when you talk, I do feel like there's this bubble around you. Like you try to, you're talking to me, you're communicating, we're connecting at some level, but I still feel some bubble there that you're almost protecting yourself. And so we're going to have, you know, you're going to have to go in there and, and it's going to be difficult, but start to see where are those pains and those wounds that make you want to protect yourself from getting close to someone and allowing that to happen. So give me something to take away for now. I mean, I see now what you're saying about to be tender i have i'm the issue with that is caused by me feeling superior and that comes from an insecurity versus underneath it all so yeah. what is the route to get out of that well that route you know that that's the that's the the big route which takes a long time and that's where the therapy would come in it's not going to be something you know i could tell you anytime you start to judge her to try to stop yourself and think about yourself and what you can improve on rather than judging her, not to judge yourself, but to take that away. But it seems like it's happening on a deeper unconscious level. And I think part of it yeah. is almost it's easier to devalue her because then you don't have to love her as much or get yeah, as close to her. Yeah. So it's all part of a bigger kind of uh, plan, unconscious plan or strategy that is protecting you or, or keeping you safe in the way that you feel comfortable. 
but it's creating the situation you're in. And and she's going to be feel frustrated. I get the feeling that she thinks she feels it when you 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 think you're better than her, or if you put I her know. down. I know, but she has hope. She has hope that I come out of it. That's why she stays. Yeah, but I think that's not you know that's that's concerning for me. And like I said, the way she brought up the issues and you said she was crying about what's going on, and I don't want to lose you. Okay, it seemed to me like you guys both said I don't want to deal with the pain of a breakup, so forget it. Let's not talk about the issues. But you guys have to talk about what's going on, the future, and. I know you said, you know, have a relationship and see what comes of it, but that's kind of taking the, I want to feel good right now. And I don't want to think about the pain of the future rather than saying, Hey, we got to be realistic and look at what we've got, where we're going, if this makes sense. So that's why I, you know, I, I get the, it's easy for you to intellectualize. My guess is also your childhood was very difficult and you got very good at living in your own head and daydreaming or going to other places and so i can see you being as you're very intelligent but at the same time you're very good at escaping reality so you can find a way intellectually to think about things in a way that gets you away from whatever it is you're dealing with which gets you into trouble because you don't always face what's going on right in front of you that sounds very smart and i would have to agree because i get it yeah um my concern now is the actions to take to um, come back to reality and to um, not escape and to be, you know, just to be and not in my head as much. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's I'm saying, and you know, we talked about it last time, and I would encourage you again. Therapy is a lot about facing yourself. You go in there and with someone else, you look at yourself more and more closely and you have to be ready that my guess is going to be you go a couple times and you don't want to go back and you'll tell yourself and you'll intellectualize it. Oh, see, it doesn't make sense. All the person did was listen anyway. It's costing too much money or what's the point of all this? I can figure it out on my own. You're going to give yourself all these excuses or reasons to stop going. But what I'm telling you is that's the same defenses that are acting against you in your life right now, playing their part out again. So what I would say is you got to go and be ready to commit for six months, a year at least. So you're going to tell yourself to stop. You're going to tell yourself to stop or you're going to have those voices telling you to stop. But I want you to trust something else that tells you to keep pushing. Just like you said with exercise, you know, you encourage your, you know, people wake up like, ah, I don't have to go today or I can go next week or whatever it is. No but, way. Right. Not yeah. with exercise. But okay. this is the same thing. This is like mental exercise for your, right. your, your right. emotional well-being. So I want you to take that same attitude that when those voices of, you know, do it later or you don't need to do it, it's not a big deal, come into your head, which they almost definitely will. I want you to be ready to fight against those and say, no, this is for my overall well-being. It's not going to feel good right now, but have faith that it can make you feel better in the long term. So the goal or the end result is that I become more content and happy with myself and others. Is that what it is? Well, sure. That's, I mean, I think that's going to be a goal for everyone in life and therapy can help you with that. Absolutely. And then you could figure out what you want more. But I think it's also a big part of it's going to be healing those old wounds that you carry with you. And from what I remember the way you talked about them last time, and even in a way today, there was a minimizing of the pain. I mean, you talked about that it was hard, but I remember feeling that. And so that tells me even more that you're going to probably resist getting into the pain, which is not easy for anyone. So be ready for that. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge. Going to therapy is something that helps you, but it isn't easy, just like, and I think we lost him, but just like uh, going to the gym, as you mentioned before, you push yourself and there's pain and discomfort, but it's for growth it's for getting better so i hope 
I hope if he is still listening that he does um, get some help and, and go to therapy. But either way, we appreciate him calling, and it's time for a commercial break anyway, so we'll go to that. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Back, let's go to our next caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Uh, I have a question regarding to anxiety. Okay. Because I'm dealing with that, and I have OCD, uh, and uh, I uh, have. Um, I'm going to have some cognitive behavioral therapy, and also uh, my doctor said that uh, my body doesn't produce so much serotonin. Uh-huh. And I lose that little amount very fast. So he said probably for the rest of my life, I have to take uh, medications for uh, having normal level of serotonin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, now I'm taking uh, medications. Uh, my cognitive treatments um, are uh, maybe in about uh, two weeks, next okay. two weeks. And, um, and the medication that I'm taking, it's not anti-anxiety it's only sexually is it um, it's, is it antidepressant yes or something like that like you said it's called cetraline yes yes okay that's like it's also called zoloft and yeah okay yes exactly and uh but uh i'm better than before but but still i feel that uh i still have that ocd and anxiety yeah, and uh, the doctor said probably we should uh, we should uh, raise the dose, uh, but also cognitive will fix it and uh, make it better. My question is that how much after this cognitive, or, or probably a little bit higher dose sertraline, mm-hmm. I can um, be like other people without OCD and anxiety because having life with anxiety is not good. Sure, well, it's not easy. Now I have some kind of maybe it's bad news for you that likely you'll be dealing with OCD your whole life if you, in fact, have obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's, you know, you use the word fix, and unfortunately, uh, things like OCD aren't usually things that fix or completely disappear. The good news is you can live a a fine life, an okay life, but, you know, if you expect that it's going to go away, you're likely going to be disappointed and frustrated and chasing something that might not be a reality. So we have to be aware of that, that OCD... Some, also, like bipolar disorder, these are things that don't go away. and They're chronic, meaning that they can come and go or they might always be there. Sometimes people become depressed for a while and then that can go away. But something like OCD, we can't expect it to disappear. So we have to have that in mind. Now, something about the medication, uh, you brought up something very important, which is you said, well, I'm dealing with OCD and anxiety. It's an anxiety disorder. Why did they prescribe me an antidepressant? Um, and the reason is that Usually for anxiety issues, anxiety disorders, especially something like OCD, they're going to prescribe you an antidepressant, not an anti-anxiety medication. Anti-anxiety medications like Xanax um, are meant for short-term use. They act very quickly. 
they're supposed to be taken either for a short period of time or here and there when someone is, let's say, having a panic attack or experiencing severe anxiety, but they're not meant for long-term consistent use, and they actually can be abused and you can become addicted to them. But when you have something like OCD, actually they prescribe you an antidepressant, which can help with making things a little bit less intense as far as the obsessions go or overall helping you with the OCD. So as far as your medication goes, I'm not a psychiatrist to tell you what to take. But as far as I understand about the medications, it makes sense that they put you on an antidepressant um, rather than an anti-anxiety medication. Now, as far as what to expect with your treatment, one thing I would definitely make sure is that you uh, make sure that whoever you see for therapy is someone who has experience treating obsessive compulsive disorder because the treatment needed for that is different than most types of talk therapy. So a general therapist who deals with lots of issues is not likely to be ready to treat you for OCD. You want to make sure you're with someone who really knows uh, OCD treatment and is aware of your diagnosis and is going to focus on that. Here in Los Angeles, I know Dr. Tabasson Vahidi is very good at dealing with OCD um, and, and has gotten training and has lots of experience with it. And so I often refer people to her because of that. So that's something I want to make sure you're aware of. Is, is your psychologist or your therapist someone who has experience and is going to treat you for OCD? Do you know about that? Actually, yes, because I don't have only one doctor. Uh, there is one general psychologist that mm -hmm. I go and talk to him whenever I want. Yeah. And uh, also, uh, I have a team, a group for cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is going to have a lot of sessions, uh, which is going to be a, lo uh, a lot of sessions with uh -huh. them, uh, with that team, because they said that you need to work with this team for behavioral therapy, cognitive. Okay. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's not only one doctor, but my question is that what is the root of this OCD? Because I heard from your father that anxiety is a problem which is very common, but it uh, has a solution. Mm -hmm. Well, anxiety, you know... I yeah, sorry, go ahead. Did you? Okay, I thought you wanted to add to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll comment on what you said. Anxiety, in a way, I could say it has a solution, but to me, you know, if someone has high anxiety as a child, they probably aren't going to have very low anxiety ever. They can manage their anxiety, but things like anxiety don't just disappear completely. And especially OCD is even a more, in a way, severe type of anxiety. And I don't want to say it, you never can get past it and no one ever has. They maybe have. But from my own uh, research and talking to different people, OCD is not something that completely goes away. So you likely, again, will be at some level dealing with it for the rest of your life. But you can definitely get it under control and manage it and deal with it in a way where it won't be interfering with your life so much. Um, it's kind of a lifelong type of a thing. I don't want to say it's as make a comparison to diabetes, but I just make that comparison so you recognize no one with diabetes can say, well, you know, now I figured it out. I don't need it anymore or I got it completely under control. They have to be aware that they always have to deal with this and might have to even be on medication for the rest of their life and take insulin. But it's something they can still lead and live a normal life. They just have to be aware of their illness. It could be the same for you. 
Now, like any illness, there's different levels of severity. So maybe we can talk a bit about your OCD. How, how does OCD affect your life, or how did you even determine that you have OCD? Well, I remember since I was seven or eight, uh, now I know that since that age I have this OCD. I mm-hmm. have all, more or less all the symptoms, intrusive thoughts, um, rituals, uh, before it was counting, uh, more or less many symptoms mm-hmm. as uh, can be involved. And sometimes I'm, I was functional in my life, but I always had anxiety, stress. Sometimes I was aware of it, sometimes no. Mm-hmm. But uh, but when I went to, first, uh, six years ago, when I went to a psychologist and I start taking medication, started make, taking medication, I felt much better and my life changed mm-hmm. a lot. So I didn't want to get rid of my medication, so I uh, continued for six, uh, six years. And then, uh, uh, then I... Uh, immigrated and moved to another country so I was thinking maybe now I'm okay and don't, mm-hmm. I don't need to take this medication so by a wrong decision I stopped and all the symptoms came back mm-hmm. so again I started uh, and it, it uh, affects my life a lot when it is in, uh, it is, uh, in its severe uh, period uh, I'm not functional I'm yeah. not functional at all yeah, it's a very debil- it even can be very I debilitating. Sorry? I think even I quit my job. I couldn't continue. For example, I can tell you that for a very, very strange, not strange, OCD reason, I quit my job because I couldn't use the toilet. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing. Uh, you know, real OCD can be very debilitating. And like a lot of mental illnesses, people sometimes use those words. Like if someone is kind of clean, they say, oh, he's so OCD. But the real illness is something very difficult and it could be debilitating. It could, like you're saying, affecting jobs, relationships. People can have a hard time leaving the home because of rituals and different things. It can be really tough. And, uh, you know, what you experience is in a way related to what I was saying before. I know you had the hope that, okay, maybe I've gotten over it or I've gotten past it. But what we understand about OCD is that it's not something that disappears. It's likely something that for the rest of your life, unfortunately, but we have to accept the reality, but that you'll have to deal with your whole life and maybe medication your whole life might be necessary i won't say for sure but i want you to be aware that what a lot of people do with psychiatric medication is they start taking it and then they feel better and they say oh i don't think i need the medication anymore but they don't realize that it's the medication that's helping them feel better so um when you're feeling better that might mean okay this is the medicine doing its job but the therapy can help you to make it even better and so um, ocd is one of those things like a lot of uh, mental illnesses where the best treatment is a combination of medication and therapy. So I'm glad it seems like you're with a team where they're where they're giving you good care. You have the psychiatry, you have many different therapists involved, and, and that's great. And I'm glad you're taking it seriously. And I want you to accept that likely treatment is going to have to be a part of your life for the rest of your life. And the idea of I'm going to get past this or get over it because anxiety is something we can, there's a solution to it. With OCD, I wouldn't see it in that way. Mm-hmm. Is it something if, 
physical, uh, I mean, something physical wrong in the brain. Yes, very likely it appears to be. And I, I've looked up the research before, but off the top of my head, I can't tell you that. We definitely know there's a genetic component. But one way I've heard it described, especially with the obsessions, is, you know, we have different thoughts that pop into our head. You know, thousands of thoughts, maybe even more, pop into your head in a given day. People with OCD, they tend to fixate on the negative ones, and also they can't get the thought out of their head. So most people have, might have a thought pop in their head, oh, what if tomorrow this happens, and then it goes away. But with someone with OCD, that negative thought gets in, and it's like a reel of a movie that just keeps playing over and over and over and over again. And of course, it's very distressing, and then very often those obsessive, intrusive thoughts, um, to deal with them, the person will do compulsive behaviors like counting or rituals or cleaning or whatever it might be to help them with those obsessive thoughts. And then it, it kind of creates, it, it takes a life of its own. And the rituals can become, people sometimes have to spend two hours to get out of the home every day because of their rituals. And because of that, they can be late places or it's it just very, very debilitating. So um, it's something, almost definitely something going on in your brain but not something that likely we can just change. So it's not like you have some issue with your shoulder and we're going to give you an adjustment. It's something that probably is likely there that won't go away, unfortunately. Uh, and the medication can help with that, as the, your psychiatrist was telling you, give you the amount of serotonin you need or balance things out a little bit better. And the therapy can also be helpful, again, if it's therapy that's targeted at OCD. But even with that, I would never say, okay, you're cured, forget about OCD, you know, go on without even remembering you had it. Likely that's not going to happen. Okay, yeah, because it's genetic. I know yeah. that. Mm -hmm. so, so, okay, so I, I should continue fighting with these. Yeah, and um, I, you know, I wish I had better, I wish I could tell you, you know, there's this cure, you get this vaccine and it goes away. I wish it was that simple. Um, but the reality does appear to be that because it's, something in your brain that's how it is and i talked about this on my show monday there could be things that as painful as your ocd is and i wish you didn't have it that it might give you some benefits somewhere else in your life too so this is part of who you are and the best thing you can likely do is accept it fully as this is me this is part of me at least and i'm gonna have to accept that i'm gonna deal with this for the rest of my life and i wish it wasn't that way but that's the reality and fortunately with treatment i can live a normal life. I can live a life that I want to live. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Uh, but last question sure. is that when I when I started with sertraline, mm -hmm. uh, because when you start with sertraline, it, it it even gives you more anxiety, mm -hmm. and it takes a time for adjustment. Uh, so uh, the doctor gave me a benzo, uh, like Xanax. Uh, yeah, it was Xanax mm -hmm. uh, for uh, for some weeks. Uh, for this adjustment, uh, but the strange thing that I felt because I also read that uh, maybe you, uh, I probably will have this OCD, uh, so for the rest of my life. But the strange thing was that when I took Banzo, I was very good, and it was like I heard Banzo is after heroin, very addictive. But mm -hmm. I, I didn't have OCD symptoms when I was taking Banzo. Uh, so yeah. what's happening? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the fact you're saying that it was that significant is interesting. Yeah, the benzodiazepines, those are the anti-anxiety medications like Xanax. Um, they, they're very strong, and that's why they're so addictive. So antidepressants, they take a few weeks usually to really kick in, and they're not that significant. That's why you won't hear about anyone 
um, recreationally taking Prozac or selling it on the street because it doesn't give you a quick feeling. But drugs like the benzodiazepines, like Xanax, they work very quickly. And because of that, you can uh, even become addicted to them because they work so fast and they work so good and people take them recreationally for that reason. So unfortunately, as much as it did feel good, it seems to be on the Xanax, likely for long-term use, it's not something feasible or even safe or good for you. I'm definitely not a psychiatrist, so you want to talk to him or her about that. But that's unfortunately the thing is that in a way it almost works too good. It has such a strong effect that you can become addicted to it. And then your body might over time respond to it in the way that you need that to calm down. So if you don't take it, you'll be even more anxious. So it has effects that aren't all positive either. So that unfortunately, that's the thing. Yeah, I wish there was this magic pill that would take away the OCD and also not have side effects or have the risks of addiction. But as far as I know, we don't have that at this time. Exactly. And maybe you can't believe it, but my OCD is that high that I even didn't want to uh, get addicted to uh, mm-hmm. Banzo. So <laughs> then I said, no, I don't want to be an addict to Banzo. So um, I even uh, stopped uh, yeah. Banzo before before the um, date that doctor said. Interesting. So yeah. <laughs> that's because of my OCD, because one of my fears in my life is that I don't want to be addicted to any substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not good for the brain. Of course, sertraline is good for brain, but banned. So, so I said, no, 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 I don't, uh, even if it, uh, if it uh, gives me a very good feeling, but I have to stop. And then I yeah. stopped uh, gradually. I mean, um, I was uh, tapering down and then I stopped. Okay. Well, you know, I'd say I'm glad you're you're in good hands with the, the psychiatrist and the therapist and really listen to them. The psychiatrist will know and even communicate with him or her. Say, you know what, I'm, I'm afraid of getting addicted, so I'm going to stop. The better, best thing you can do is to always tell them, even if you want to do something they didn't recommend, but communicate with them because you never know what the effects are if you just decide on your own. You don't want to self-medicate or self-prescribe or stop on your own. Always communicate with them, but continue with the treatment and be ready that this likely will be a lifelong thing, but you can make it more manageable and take care of yourself and give yourself the best life you can give if you continue the treatment and continue taking care of yourself. Exercising will give uh, a little bit more relief from anxiety. You know, in general, it does help. Uh, Exercise, we're talking about side effects. It's one of those things that really doesn't have side effects. It's just all beneficial physically, mentally, emotionally. So if you can exercise, do it. And I would talk to your psychiatrist about that too. Let's see what they say. But definitely exercise can help. Meditation can at times be helpful uh, with anxiety. So there's those things you can do as well. But I would always, you know, you have a treatment team, so be in contact with them, and, and they'll know you and your case even better than I can know right now. So keep well, talking I to them and getting help. By their yes, uh, I exactly did the tapering down by their suggestion, but I just uh, called them and said I wanted to do it a little bit uh, earlier. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's, like I said, as long as you're keeping in contact with them, you know, listening to what they're saying, keep being consistent with it, that's going to give yourself the best chance to deal with it in the best way. And, you know, like I said, I wish I had better news for you, but OCD is, in a way, a lifelong disease. It very likely will always be with you. But it doesn't mean you can't live a normal life if you get that treatment. So I appreciate you calling. wish you all the best with that. And I'm happy you're getting treatment and getting help. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you for your help. Nice talking to you. Have a great I'm day. Nice. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
going to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, I am. Yes. Hi. Good afternoon, Doctor. Good afternoon. I have a question. Um, your your father, as I heard on the his program, sometimes says uh, the the boot situation of the person is very important. Mm-hmm. If it's hardship on the boot and maybe damage the brain or something like that, if I misunderstand or not. Sure. Um, uh, my son was very hard uh, on the time of birth, and then my my question is, is that maybe the cause of um, OCD or maybe the hardship on life, for example, if the comfort after so many years, parent divorce and uh, they get upset or under stress or something, that gonna gonna make the OCD or they born with it? So, you know, the thing with almost any mental illness is, or we, you know, we sometimes have this question, is it the genetics or is it the environment? And almost always we're going to say it's both. And so in the case of something like OCD, we do see a strong genetic component. So it has a very strong genetic aspect to it, but it doesn't mean the environment doesn't mean anything. So we want to look at the interaction between the two. And exactly what it was in the case of, I don't know if you, what you said, was it your son? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we can't say for sure it was the birth or the divorce or other things, but we would expect that a more stressful, of course, first of all, the birth itself, there can be stress, but then also, as you're saying, if there's effects on the brain, we know that OCD does involve some effects in the brain functioning a little bit differently than it needs to. So that's possible. But of course, the stress itself and anxiety from a young age can likely relate to that too. So it's not purely genetic, meaning that you, if you have, there's an OCD gene that for sure turns on, just like with schizophrenia, we know there's a big genetic component, but we know that the environment also matters. Uh, so it's going to be an interaction between those two things. It's hard to say exactly what the cause was. Exactly, Doctor. Let me uh, repeat what I understand. Sure. You mean if if somebody doesn't have genetically that um, problem with OCD or um, bipolar or something, the environment couldn't make it happen. But if there is a little things under under mm-hmm. surface, if the environment change and the comfort gone and become a stressful life and this and that then that's going to become out of the surface, correct? In a way, yeah, I could you could say it in that way. I wouldn't maybe say 0% chance for anyone, but yes, it's kind of like based on the genetics, you're more and more likely to have it, but the environment then plays a part. So yeah, if you have no OCD, no anxiety in your family at all, it's very, very unlikely. I don't want to say impossible that you'll have OCD, maybe close to impossible. But then if you have a very lots of OCD in your family and anxiety in your, and even depression in your family, you'll have a higher chance that you could then develop OCD based on your environment, the different stressors and things that happen. So yeah, it's kind of that, it's a combination uh, of things, meaning that the genetic, it's not like brown eyes, where if you're just born, you're going to have brown eyes, but it's something that it can have an effect. Maybe it's something like your weight or your height, that there are some factors, maybe weight more than height, where the environment plays a big part too. 
you're right. But the solution is just taking some pills or some medicine to, to cure it or help no. it. Well, yeah, well, I mean, as I was talking with the, the previous caller, I wouldn't, I tr- we'd usually with something like OCD, we wouldn't talk about curing it. But medication can definitely help, but therapy also. So you almost always, with most medic, uh, any mental illness that's serious, almost always the combination of medication and therapy is the best. So you're saying your child, how old is your child? He's 38. Okay, 38. So yes, for... For him, then definitely therapy and uh, medication would would be the best bet. Is he getting treatment? No. But hard to bring it up. It's very hard to bring it up that you need help. Yeah. Well, that's always the difficult conversation, and many people, uh, they they talk to me. Now, someone with OCD, if they genuinely have it, the OCD is going to be causing them pain and distress and discomfort in their life that they recognize. Sometimes people talk about OCD and OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. People with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, they can feel very okay with it. And they're people that they can be very obsessed with rules and keeping things in a certain way and cleanliness and order. And they actually like their OCPD. But people with OCD, they don't like it at all. It's it's torturous. It's suffering. So if your son genuinely has it, then likely he doesn't feel good about it. And if that's the case, what I'd recommend is rather than telling him you have problems, you need help, I would try to connect with him at his pain. So if he says, gosh, it's so hard, I did this, or I keep thinking about this and I can't get it out of my mind, you would say that that sounds so difficult or that must be so painful. You know, I, I, I was wondering if you thought maybe some there could be help for you or if you'd wanted to get help because you deserve that help because you're in so much pain. So, so let me ask you this. What makes you think your son has OCD? He just clean right. It's every time he's home, he's just cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. Nobody could do anything that makes him upset. If that white shade going to be um, a spot on it, don't touch it. He's always controlling the cleanliness. Uh-huh. And uh, if if you say something against, but this is the, the the last thing you bring it up. I I was thinking about maybe he doesn't have OCD. If it's like somebody has narcissist, that he thinks always he's right. He never thinks he's he, he's wrong or he says something which is not right. He always thinks his idea is the best one and everybody should obey to him. Well, there could be some narcissism there, but you know, the, the obsessive compulsive personality disorder, someone who's that way is very strict about right and wrong and rules and things being a certain way. So it could be that, and they would be someone who would uh, be obsessed with cleanliness and keeping things in order. So you want to maybe look that up, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and see if maybe that matches what your son has a little bit more. Because, see, the thing is, if he has obsessive compulsive personality disorder, he won't want help necessarily because he feels okay about it. He actually likes, he might even like the way he is. Um, so that might be why, because at the age of 38, if he has OCD and he genuinely has it, it should be interfering with his life in a really significant way to the point where he would want to get help. So someone with OCPD, the personality disorder, they like things clean, orderly, they have perfectionism, they have a big, um, they can be big on rules, they're not flexible, so if you tell them do it this way, they won't even listen to you, which is maybe what you're talking about. Uh, so, so I think the big determination would be, does he have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCPD, 
obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which are actually, although there's overlap, they're very different at the same time. But he needs help to go to therapist to do something. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say he needs help. It seems like, and that's the thing, actually, when people have OCPD, the personality disorders, a lot of times they feel okay with it, but the people around them don't like it. So it seems like you don't like being around him because of the way he is which again could be an indication that it's more the personality disorder. So, I mean, does he need help? I mean, maybe it'll, it'll likely make him more flexible if that's what he in fact has more flexible and able to, to, you know, be a certain way, but personality disorders don't change. It's hard to change them. It's a pretty fixed part of their personality. So as always, if he doesn't think he has a problem or if he's okay with it, it's hard to convince someone to get help or tell them they need to change. They have to want to that. And if he's okay with how he is, then it could be okay. What else does he do that makes you think of OCD? So I want to still get an idea if it's OCD or, or OCPD. Okay. You know, doctor, he lives in another country. I see him maybe once a year. Okay. But anytime I go this year, uh, he, he's more he's more controlling and he's more upset and he fights with his wife, he fights with me for everything and he want to control but you bring it up something that was new to me. For example, if somebody has depression, if somebody has too much anxiety, it's hurting. Yeah. You want to get help because mm-hmm. it's hurting you. You don't want to be depressed. You want to act it. Right. But when somebody has the other one that is, has P in it, uh, OCPD, OCPD, yeah. something mm-hmm. like that's the one maybe she do- he doesn't. I just want to feel good. I don't care if he does cleaning or what and what because I'm not living with them. But mm-hmm. I want to just be sure he's happy. He doesn't have, every day he wake up, he doesn't want to be under the bed again, uh, under the blanket and don't come out. I want to just be happy. If, if that person with that personality disorder feels good and feels like um, everybody's submissive to him and he's the boss of the home, I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's not my life. Yeah, it's not your life. I wouldn't be so okay with it. But you're right. I mean, you, you know, at the end of the day, if he's feeling okay, First of all, he's not going to want to get help. Now, his wife might not be happy and they might have marital issues. That's something else and that's something for them to deal with and that would be important. But um, did you say he is that depressed or you were just saying, for example, if someone is that depressed? No, he's not. He's okay. not depressed. Yeah. He's so, not. I mean, you know, that's the thing is, you know, the person has to feel that they're not okay. And if it is OCPD, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd recommend that you look it up online to read more about it and see if you feel like that fits your son, he's going to feel okay he's not going to feel distressed about it. But like I said, the people around him might not like it. And that's usually the case with person, a lot of personality disorders. So just to use the terms, we talk about OCPD as being egosyntonic at times, meaning it feels okay for the person. But then OCPD is egosystonic, meaning it doesn't feel good for the person. They don't like dealing with it. So that's why your son, if you talk to him, he's like, nothing's wrong with me. I feel the way I am is good. It's actually, he says it's better to be this way. It's better to follow rules. It's better to keep things clean. Whereas someone with OCD, they are really suffering with it. They don't know what to do. Every day is, could be like a nightmare for them because they can't leave the house. They have these horrible thoughts. It's really painful. So it could be your son is dealing with that. And especially because you don't see him that much, your observations are going to be hard to really be very precise. So, so we don't really know. So I would say look up OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, see if that's what he's dealing with. But like I said, it could affect his marriage in a very negative way. And that's something that they, if, if that's up to them, again, it's not for you to intervene or decide anything, but you can see if that's an issue and hopefully they would get help if that is the case. 
Um, but hopefully that gives you an idea of maybe what he really is dealing with. Thank you so much. Last sure. question. Sure. The first one needs a treatment with therapy or some drugs, but the second one is just the way that they like to live. Well, is it like- yes and no. OCD, the first one, if that's what you're referring to, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, yes, I would recommend, uh, as, as is recommended, medication and therapy. Um, for OCPD, therapy can be helpful and maybe even medication. But again, if the person doesn't think they have a problem, they're not going to change. So I wouldn't say you can't do anything about it, but they oftentimes don't want to change. But if he wants to change, yeah, therapy could potentially be helpful along with uh, maybe medication. I actually don't know if they use OCPD. Uh, they use medication for OCPD. So again, it's, it's going to be up to him. If he feels okay, he probably won't ask for help. And doctor, this happened, for example, when he was very, very unclean, when he was teenager, unclean, really. And right now, it's very, very, very clean. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. It's, it's what happened to, to him that he become opposite of the one he was before? You know, usually personality disorders show themselves more in late adolescence, early adulthood. So I don't know exactly what happened. That That is interesting. It's hard to say specifically what happened. I did look it up as we were talking. Sometimes they use antidepressants for... OCPD, but that's again if he feels that it's an issue. If he feels happy with his life, he's not gonna, he's not gonna change, and you have to just accept that. And again, he's in another country. Allow him to live his life and give him that space. But I'm glad you yeah, called. He's very active. He he goes to martial arts. He does all the um, sports. He's very yeah. Active. Well, martial arts seems like something that could fit with what he's doing. You know, he likes rules and order and the maybe the discipline. But again, you know, you got to leave him to that. But I'm glad you called because a lot of people ask about the differences between obsessive compulsive disorder and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and it can be hard for people to, to tell the difference at times. So, uh, thank, thank you, you so for much. your call. Thank you. Yeah, have thank a great you day. So much. I appreciate it. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye bye. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Doctor Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. You're on the air. I just want to let you know, I, I do apologize before we start. We have about seven minutes, so uh, um, we'll see what we can do at that time. But go ahead. Okay. Uh, I have a teenager daughter. She's in the ninth grade. Are we on speaker, by the way? No, I'm not. Okay. There's a little bit of an echo. I don't know if you're like in a hallway or something. Uh, I'm sorry. No. And then uh, we we just think he's moved to California, and I used to live in California before. And I was wondering how moving impacts her life because she already established here, and uh, I was wondering what is whether what is your idea? Okay. Um, so uh, from what I heard, and again, the sound wasn't coming in great. I think you said your daughter was 14. And you guys are moving from the East Coast to California. Now, she lived her whole life in on the East Coast? Yes. Okay. So she's never lived in California? She's been there. She was raised, you know, she was six or seven. Okay. And what you, I meant, you mentioned quickly over the break, it's you're remarried, so it's not with her father, it's with her stepfather. Yes. Okay. Any other siblings? One, uh, Younger one, 10 years old. 10 years, okay. 
That's a uh, that's well, her. Honestly, we are not going to remarry, but we're going to, you know, just uh, be closer together, so we can, you know, just take care of the kids better. Okay, so you oh, you guys aren't married. We are not married. She's my ex-husband, and the reason I'm going to move because you know I want them to spend time with their dad. Oh, okay. friend, you know. oh, okay. Sorry, I think I understood you wrong before. I'm, okay, so you want to live closer to their biological father? Yes. Okay. Well, that can hopefully overall be good. How is their relationship with their father? Uh, very good. It's good? Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, hopefully that would be a good thing. Now, um, if she's expressed she doesn't want to move, or let me ask you that, does she want to move? Is she at all okay with it, or she doesn't want it? She does not want it. Okay. So that's going to be a, a struggle, and that puts you in a tough spot because um, if you force her to move, she's probably going to be angry about that. She's going to miss all her friends. She's going to miss life there and what she's used to and accustomed to. So, of course, she's going to be upset and angry about that. And so you have to be ready for that. Now, I'm not going to say don't move or move. I'm going to leave that choice to you. But if you're asking me the effect if you're moving anyone without them wanting it, of course they're going to be unhappy. If I told you tomorrow you're moving to Minnesota, you probably wouldn't be so thrilled, you know, even if though Minnesota could be a fine place. But if you're forced to go somewhere, you don't, you're not going to feel good. And especially at that age, 14, that's a, you know, the, the anger is likely going to be very strong. So you have to be ready for that. And what I would say is make sure you empathize with her. And by that, I mean, well, rather than telling her, oh, it's not a big deal, or California is great, or you should be so happy. Let her know you understand that this is difficult for her, that she's upset, that she's angry. Uh, don't deny her feelings or tell her not to be upset about it, uh, because we can understand that. Yeah, because it's a, it's a thing that, you know, we have a very stable life here, but regarding my job, I can get a, a very better job over there, and, you know, my hours will be better because they have to work 10 hours straight or 12 hours straight. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now she's teen. She wants to have a car. She wants to go places for her. So she's very social. She's in every, you know, club at her uh, her high school. And, you know, she's successful. She's very successful. But uh, the thing is, you know, if I get close to his dad, you know, he can help me to raise two teens. And I was watching from the beginning that they had a good relationship with their dad. You know, they've been friends since the divorce because I just didn't want to hurt my kids. And uh, but you know. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, so I mean, you know, it's, I, I get your situation's not an easy one. Because of her age, especially, I would make sure you have a conversation with her. You know, the things you're telling me, make sure you explain them to her and let her have a voice in what she tells you. Like, listen to her and what she says. Um, and maybe she's just going to be really angry, but at least let her be heard by you. That but you know, she's not going to be angry. You know, she said, Mama, I like, I already have my friend. I already, uh, she's in a cheer. She's a cheerleader at school, uh -huh. and I'm not sure she is going to have a same situation when we move to California. And uh -huh. for sure, the life is more expensive over there. It's just not easy, like here. Um, you know, she said, Mom, whatever you want to, but the problem is, I do not like to stay here for the rest of my life. I was thinking, if I want to move one day, why I move right now, you know, rather than future. Yeah. Well, I was so thinking if I yeah, but I want you to you know recognize 
realistically, it sounds like the move, although hopefully it has some benefits for them in some way, you're doing it mostly because of you. It's what you want. And so exactly. we have to accept that your kids, I mean, they're not going to like that. Why should they feel good about that? So you have to be realistic about that, that if you are doing it for you, they're not going to be happy. You know, it's, it's your choice, not theirs. And they're being forced to, to uproot and change their lives. And your daughter seems very amenable in a way, but we also want to make sure they're not just taking care of you. So you have to be aware of that, that they don't just do what makes mom happy and they, they don't tell you they're upset or they're pretending they're okay when they're not. So I would make sure you really communicate with her um, about what's going on and make it very clear that she can express when she's upset or not happy about it in general, but especially about this move, which is not going to be easy. So make sure you give her that space. And also for your 10 year old, the younger one maybe is even more quiet or doesn't say as much. And so you think they're okay, but we don't know what's going on inside. So, you know, just make sure you're communicating with them. And of course that's for any parent, not even just going through a move, but making sure your kids have that space. And just because a kid is quiet and doesn't ever say they're sad or not happy, don't just take that at their word and never try to really get what's going on for them. So be ready that it's not going to be easy for you, but for them it's even harder and that you're the one that wants it more than them. So we can expect them to be more unhappy about it than you are and have resistance. And especially when they start to establish themselves and, you know, she's having, let's say, a hard time, she might get mad at you. Oh, look what I'm dealing with. Back then everything was okay. Here things suck and I can't, you know. I have no friends and I have no this and I have no that. She's going to be upset with you, likely. So be ready for that. I do have to end the show. If you'd like to call another time, maybe we can talk some more, but good luck with everything. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sure. Have a good day. All right. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Raman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.